Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to STAT, Shocking Traumas and Treatments. And we are your hosts, Karen Wickham and Mary Gardner, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Hello, everybody. I hope that you are all doing well. So let's get into the next part of this mini-series within a series on human medical experiments on children. The next part we're going to discuss is radiation experiments. Now, these experiments continue to be conducted at the Fernald School, as I'd mentioned in the other episodes. There's another school as well that was part of these experiments in particular, and that's the Rentham School in Massachusetts. Did I say it right? Massachusetts? Massachusetts? (laughs) I'm never sure. I think people say it both ways. Tomato, tomato. Tomato, tomato. If anybody's from Massachusetts, uh, please let me know how to properly pronounce it. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Anyway, um, the Fernald School was one of the worst schools for the feeble-minded as, uh, you know, was often... I mean, I can't... That name just drives me crazy. Yeah, I know. Like, I mean, the fact that they made schools for imbeciles and the feeble-minded and lunatics, you know, I guess that was what you said then, but it doesn't make it any nicer. It was like, ah, well, that's what they are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's terrible. Anyway, um, so home for disabled children, orphans, children whose families were poor. I've gone through this before, divorced or abused uh, children who had other children who had run-ins with the law, epilepsy, stutters, that kind of stuff. But basically, what honestly is worse? Like, I think these kids, some of these kids were in horrible situations or, or, and then they were taken out of the, these horrible homes and put into just as a horrible place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the abusive home. You know, and wor- where, worse than the situation they were put into. Yeah, and who's going to save them from this place? Yeah, exactly. You know, the able-bodied children that were in these schools, as they put them, became the caregivers of the children with disabilities who could not care for themselves. And so can you imagine that these kids were caring for these disabled children? So they took over the roles of the caregivers that were there, if that's what you want to call them. Mm-hmm. And what if they have behavioral issues or something? I mean, yeah. then you've got unwell people taking care of unwell people, like mentally unwell taking care of physically unwell. Yeah, it, it just, none of the, no one should have been taking care of each other in that place. They should have been cared for. And let's just face it, a lot of the kids that were there shouldn't have been there to begin with. They were also forced to do grueling physical labor, hard work with dangerous machinery. Um, They had to maintain the grounds and work the farm for nine to 10 hours a day in the blistering sun. They also had to work in the kitchen. And even though it was called a school, they were not offered any education whatsoever. There were kids as young as six doing some of these jobs. So, Meaning like they could be out on the farm and picking crops or, you know, planting seeds and that kind of stuff. If you were able-bodied in their minds, they put you to work. And of course, they didn't have to pay staff to do it. 
And on top of that, all the children were targets and victims of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse on a daily basis. In fact, if we're going to talk about the staff that worked there, the institution knowingly hired sex offenders. What? Yeah. What do you mean they knowingly hired sex offenders? They knew that they were a sex offender, but hired them anyway. I don't even have words for that. Yeah. So, and then in 1950, these scientists put together something to um, lure in these kids, and they called it the Science Club. I guess they figured if they could get volunteers, quote and unquote, um, that it'd be easier to conduct their experiments. So a team of doctors and scientists from MIT met with a group of boys and introduced them to the science club. And at first they were really kind to these kids, treated them very nicely. And this is something that they were not used to. So immediately they were attracted to it. But this was initially, once they got them in the club, and they were going to be part of this club regardless, but once they got them in there, this facade dropped. They told them that if they wanted to join the group, they would be taken out on fun excursions, for example, baseball games or parties at MIT. And it would allow them to get away from the horrible and abusive living conditions that they were in. So they're like, sign me up. Approximately 20 boys volunteered to join the science club. They were moved to another area of the institution so that they were isolated from the other residents. So what went on? What was this science club? Well, they had to eat specifically prepared meals, different from the rest of the residents. And they were told that they must eat everything. In particular, the oatmeal that they were fed for breakfast. They would get an injection and blood drawn every day, twice a day. And they also took daily urine and stool samples. If they asked to leave the science club, they were told that they weren't allowed to. If they refused to eat or comply with the test, they were severely punished. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a club I'd want to join. No. No. It sounds more like jail. Well, it's worse than that. It's, you know, they're... I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. like jail where you're forced to be a guinea pig. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I talk about punishment... They were, they were put into solitary confinement in cold, dark cells with no windows and all they got was bread and water and no toilet, just a bucket in the corner, a filthy mattress with lice on the floor and soaked with urine. They were left there until they agreed to participate. So what choice did they have? Uh, yeah, I don't know. Some of these kids... No choice. We're literally climbing up bookshelves and sitting on top of these bookshelves so that they didn't have anybody come near them and touch them. They would run around the room crying. Like these needles were not like what we have now. And what we have now is not pleasant in any way. Mm-hmm. But the needles and the, and the way of drawing blood, I mean, would be very painful. A little more barbaric back then. Yeah, and twice a day, every day. Mm -hmm. So 
this is what they were doing. They were feeding them cereal with radioactive milk. Huh. I, in particular, um, the oatmeal. Well, radioactive iron supplements. Oh, they okay. were putting radioactive iron into the milk and also given supplements. And this was funded by Quaker Oats. Oh, no, don't tell me that. Please. And the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission. Oh, boy. So the volunteers were kept in the study until they were discharged, and that was often until their late teens or early 20s. So can you imagine living yeah. like this? If they didn't die first. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah. There was no statistics information that I could find about how much radiation they were given over this period of time. But, you know, I can do the math in my head and say it's too much. A little bit is too much. Mm -hmm. So they were so traumatized by the daily invasive tests and mistreatment that they begged to go back to the horrible conditions from where they came from. <laughs> I'd rather go back to the other horrible conditions. Yeah. So let's let's talk about the conditions that they were willing to go back to. This is just touching on how horrible this is anyway. So those with developmental and physical disabilities were often drugged into a stupor so that they would require little care and supervision. So let's just keep them drugged, Stones, compliant, yeah. <laughs> if you want to. Zombies, basically. Yes. They were hosed down in showers on the outside of the building to remove the urine, feces, and other detritus. They were in large wards with beds that were just inches apart from each other. So you can imagine these conditions and that disease ran rampant within its walls. And the smell in these wards was almost, well, it was unbearable. Um, there would be urine, feces, vomit, and uh, unwashed bodies. The, the, it would be all over the floors and the walls. And, and they were often kept in these like large cribs. Then they would get horrible skin breakdown and bed sores, uh, skin tears, bruises, and cuts covered their bodies. And you think about why it was caused, but also what would get into these wounds. Mm -hmm. Many of the children had all of their teeth pulled so that they didn't have to deal with cavities and other dental issues. So now you're feeding them this mush every day and they're not getting, like, you, your teeth help you eat a full diet you can yeah, chew it and eat it People forget how much you need your teeth for like you know getting proper nutrition just just eating alone you have to be able to eat like uh proteins and and vegetables that you need your teeth to break down and help you to you know be healthy and the salivary glands in your mouth with the teeth help to break down some of these yeah. things and absorb some of the nutrients and stuff. So Yeah, so I mean I'm they sure just they were malnourished among other things. But can you imagine having all your teeth pulled so that they don't have to deal with the it just I don't know, the whole scene makes me uh just so enraged it's and sad at the same time. Horrific. So can you imagine these um these these boys finding those conditions preferable than, you know, being in the study. The next study is phytate study. Phytates or phytic acid are antioxidant compounds found in whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. And the chief concern about the phytates is that they would bind to certain dietary minerals, including iron, zinc, manganese, and 
calcium and it would slow their absorption. So the researchers wanted to learn to what extent the phytates affected absorption and nutrition. And in this particular study, they wanted to figure out how it affected iron metabolism. So they fed 18 children between the ages of 10 and 14 years old cereal and milk and water with radioactive iron in it. And they did a series of eight weeks of experiments. So 40 weeks in total. And so, yeah. 40 weeks of being fed radioactive iron. Next, I'm going to talk about calcium studies. In 1949 at the Fernald School, they were trying to figure out calcium metabolism. So they were allowed to use 20, in quote, normal teens, but they could use as many abnormal patients as they wanted. It was a free-for-all. So only, let's just abuse 20, only 20 normal kids. But the other kids, have as many as you want. Let's talk about Fernald's medical director at that time by the name of Dr. Clemens Ernst Benda. And this guy was a sick son of a bitch. He did many horrible medical experiments and exhibited psychotic behavior. So I, I took a quote from the book Against Their Will. So here we go. Quote, During their time at Fernald, and for many years afterwards, the state boys would speculate on Benda's myriad research projects and recount stories of strange experiments. Secret autopsies and unmarked graves in cemeteries filled with former Fernald patients. Lurid anecdotal accounts of dozens of dissected brains in glass jars and of Benda in photographs with Nazi uniformed officers. End quote. Okay, so... I mean, the son of a bitch had fucking pictures of Nazi uniformed officers and dissected brains and glass jars in his office. I mean, if that doesn't scream, I want to do my own type of Nazi experiments, I don't know what does. I mean, what a sick fuck. Anyway. Um, how frightening would it be for anybody who had to go to his office? Like, as the children, right? Would depend on, I guess, for the children, absolutely. But are, what does his coworkers think? Maybe some of them were like, hey, cool. You know? <laughs> Maybe. Anyway, getting back to the calcium study. Benda agreed to allow MIT to do this study and that the children were only supposed to get one dose, one microcurie each during this round of tests as stated by the atomic energy commission but it was you know obviously dangerous parents were informed but they left out the radioactive calcium part <laughs> oops yeah that was a typo also as time went on they complied less and less to the guidelines of course hmm. and by 1953 15 patients students were given five microcuries. Now I'm going to get into explaining that a little bit. Okay. So they went from one to five, but it gets worse. Yes. I'm sure probably one is too much. Yeah. In September, 1953, Benda decided to do a depraved experiment on a palliative 10 year old boy with Hurler Hunter syndrome. I know we've talked about that before. I'm trying to remember what the syndrome is. Is, is, Easy as I can break it down is that the body can't break down sugars. So they build up in the body 
It causes heart valve problems, cardiomyopathy, hearing loss, build up a cerebral spinal fluid around the child's brain, so hydrocephalus, enlarged organs like connective tissues, tonsils, muscles, heart, liver, and spleen, vision problems, glaucoma, carpal tunnel and tight muscles, Mm, respiratory infection, sleep apnea, difficult breathing, hernias, they have a short stature, bones forming incorrectly. That's what I was thinking about. Yeah. was the bones. It's just the, a curved, uh, a rounding curve of the child's upper back and excessive hair growth. So in the lifespan um, of these children with this disease is unfortunately not that long. Mm-hmm. But so, yes, this child would would be considered palliative at 10 years old. However, palliative doesn't mean you die tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you'll get a palliative diagnosis if you have a disease that's, you know, progressing at a, at a faster rate, but not necessarily within the next week or two. So he kind of looked at it as, oh, well, you know, he's dying anyway, so yeah. I can do whatever I want. Yeah. And in fact, he tried to get the Atomic Energy Commission to change their guidelines to allow for palliative patients to have gruesome and extreme experiments conducted on them. Because after all, they're just going to die. So let's do whatever. You know, it's just just sick shit. Okay. Let's move on and talk about the thyroid studies that took place in the 1950s to the 1960s. Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Hospital experimented on the residents at Fernald and Rentham Hospital slash schools. And one study specifically targeted people with Down syndrome between the ages of 5 and 26. And I don't know why they were targeting people with Down syndrome. They delivered doses of 70 microcuries of radiation. That sounds like a lot. I don't know what the measurements are. I know you're going to talk about that, but still, that's crazy. Yeah, I went down a... 70? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you you said you went down a rabbit hole. I went down a rabbit hole. I tried to figure out in a couple hours what nuclear physicists know. Not everybody could be the nuclear physicist. Yeah. <laughs> One of uh, my son Van's best friends is a nuclear physicist. He works. Oh, at yeah, a, that's right. He's yeah, I should have called up Ian and said, explain this to me. That's right. You totally should have. Oh, yeah. Well, oh. maybe I'll call him up anyway. <laughs> explain <laughs> this to me. Um, Things are measured. Like what I was trying to figure out is like trying to compare inches to milliliters. It just it's. Right, to right. barometric pressure. I mean, yeah. but they uh, ask Alexa. Yeah, I, I, I tried. Yeah, no, Alexa was like, doo doo. <laughs> it's like I swore at her or something. Um, and so it's absorbed versus dose, type of radiation, how fast it disintegrates, um, weight, overall health, nutrition, etc. So just giving a little example is that people that work around radiation, whether they're an x-ray tech or like Ian, um, they want to limit their exposure to what is equivalent to two microcuries every five years. If that gives any indication. So yeah, so they have to wear like some sort of monitor thing. Monitor. When I worked at the... Um, the hospital, I, well, not the adult hospital, but the pediatric hospital, we had these little, um, 
things that we clipped onto our pants and we had to hand them in and they would read the Traffic. level of radi radiation and they would tell you, oh no, you're fine, you can keep doing it or you need to stay out of, because when we're in trauma rooms, like there's x-rays flying yeah, all yeah. over the place, right? And glowing. And glowing, yeah. Or, yeah. So two. Every five years. Every five years. And they gave this person 70. At once. At once. Holy shit. Yeah. And just to try to explain the differences in radiation. So what they were given was considered a moderate dose, which is scary. Because you think when two microcuries in five years is like really a, a very small dose, but over that unacceptable. So this is a moderate dose. And so this is how radiation will, the stages that it will affect your, your body. I don't know if this is going to bore you guys, uh, but I found it a bit interesting. Maybe you will too, or fast forward. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when using ionizing radiation, if you're exposed, it's called irradiation or irradiation. And it occurs when all or part of the body is exposed to penetrating radiation from external, from an external source. For example, a chest x-ray. Okay. When you're done, you are not radioactive and you can't spread the radiation. Okay. Uh, CT scans are like a whole bunch of, I can't remember the number, but they're like a whole bunch of, um, chest x-rays all in one so I, I forget how much the number is but it's a lot okay so then the next stage is external and internal radiation and what happens is the radioactive materials have spread to unintended locations in the body so example the skin or all over the skin or different parts of the skin and internally like the respiratory system gi cardiovascular and then the last stage is incorporation. So the uptake of radioactive materials by the body cells, tissues, bone, liver, thyroid, and it is distributed throughout the body. Um, and it's also based on the chemical properties of the radiation. So, you know, symptoms uh, for moderate exposure, possible chromosomal damage, temporary reduction in white blood cells. So they were highly immune compromised. Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, muscle aches and pains, fatigue. Mm -hmm. So at the very least, they went through those horrible symptoms. This was either being injected or fed to them. Hmm. Makes me think of um, like in the miniseries Chernobyl when the guys are. Oh, yeah. The horrific stuff they're going through. So oh. I can't imagine. I mean, there's birth defects mm -hmm. to this very day and people... I mean, it's going to happen for a lot long, a lot longer than this. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, scary, scary shit. Okay. Um, this was done on purpose. Yeah. Right? I mean, that intentionally. was a horrific accident, but this is intentional. Yeah. Done on the most... Vulnerable. Yeah. Vulnerable population. So this is what, that's what they did at the Fernald School. This is what they did at the Rentham School. Same study conducted by Harvard Boston Medical School. Mass General Hospital, and also funded by the public health. Mm -hmm. 75 children between the age of 1 to 11 were in this study. 60 had a daily dietary supplement of sodium iodide, and 15 had 
separate doses every two weeks for three months. In total, they both received the equivalent of eight microcuries of radioactive iodine. Like mentioned earlier, it is said that there are hundreds of children and adults buried in unmarked graves on the property of Fernald School who died because of the terrible experiments conducted on them by Dr. Benda. Next, radioactive studies on newborns. Oh, come on. Seriously, newborns? Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay, now I know why you were angry and ranting. <laughs> We've lost the time. Yeah. In 1954, the University of Tennessee College of Medicine conducted this study. By, uh, it was a, the scientist was Dr. Van Middlesworth. And he studied or did experiments on seven newborns between the ages of two to three days old. A panel of medical experts determined that it was safe to inject radioactive um, iodine into these babies. Now, these parents were poor um, and uneducated. And the scientists took advantage of this by manipulating the parents to give consent. Mm-hmm. In 1955, Michigan Hospital, 65 babies from one day to two weeks old also received oral doses of this radioactive iodine. And the doctors felt it wasn't harmful. Even if it was harmful, they felt it was worth the risk. That the benefits outweighed the cost. But what were the benefits? Seriously. Regardless of what they said, I don't think it takes a rocket science or, or rocket scientist or nuclear physicist <laughs> to know that this would cause harm. It's radioactive. We know the radioactive stuff isn't good. When it's babies, newborns, uh -huh. shameful. Now, I'm pretty sure that these bastards would not do this to their own babies or children or other family members. Mm -hmm. So isn't it wonderful that they had the privilege to dictate and calculate the risks that were acceptable for other people's children? And, and children that were in these disgusting institutions that were considered throwaways hmm. and that their only use for society, like I've said before, before was to sacrifice themselves for the good of mankind. But they were just sacrificed by the doctors. Mm -hmm. Psychological studies. That's what we're going to move on to next. In particular, I'm going to talk about Bellevue Hospital, the children's psych ward. Does that not make uh, your veins run cold? Yeah. I mean, we've all heard of Bellevue Hospital. Well, I don't know if we've all heard of Bellevue Hospital, but... Well, I covered it. We're pretty familiar. Yes, I'm using just in society people have heard that. Yeah, I don't know, but I'm thinking I covered it, I think, in at least two episodes talking about it. Um, Ten Days in a Madhouse. Mm -hmm. uh, that episode, um, she was at Bellevue Hospital. The She went in and uh, pretended to be a psych patient so that she could uh, get the inside scoop. Mm-hmm. This is in Manhattan, New York, and the sicko I'm going to talk about is Dr. Loretta Bender. Now, as discussed before, it didn't take much for a child to be admitted to a psych ward, or a woman. Piss off your husband. <laughs> or if you were poor or had the wrong colored skin or, you know, whatever sick reason they, they chose you. Undiagnosed mental illness back then that was not understood. So probably, there were right? people that were really unwell there. Mm -hmm. mixed with people that had no business being there. 
here's some of the criteria that could get you into a psych ward. You're shy. You're a loner. You had, you know, you were emotional or fearful or, def or defensive or disrespectful or had too high of an IQ or too low of an IQ or, you know, you stuttered maybe or a juvenile delinquent and a host of other things that adults didn't like about their child or the child that they were caring for. Mm -hmm. Autism probably. At yeah. At that point, not well understood. And what it, that's what it often boiled down to is that they didn't want to have anything to do with these kids. So they said, oh, well, they're, they're mental defectives. <laughs> Let's send them to the psych ward. Um, and on top of it, if there was a history of mental illness in the family combined with being a foster child, an orphan or being poor, their chances would go significantly up that you could end up in, in this hell hole. Mm, no doubt. So this doctor, Loretta Bender, prescribed gruesome treatments to her pediatric victims along with medical experiments and uh, they were oftentimes interchangeable. She was hired on there in 1931 and in 1934 became the senior psychiatrist. So she did run the show. That's right. Put the psycho in charge. Yeah. And she ran the children's ward performing these horrible acts without question or opposition. She was the, mm -hmm. the god there. And most of the children were diagnosed with schizophrenia, of course. And these are the reasons I think that they were is because they couldn't give them an, an, uh, an easy, it was just like an easy diagnosis. They weren't quite sure, well, you're schizophrenic. It painted all the children with the same brush. If they came in like this and had these symptoms, Ah, uh, they're schizophrenic. I thought usually schizophrenia didn't show up until teenage years. Yeah, late teens. Or or couldn't really be diagnosed until those years. Yeah, it's um, late teens, early 20s um, that you often see and mostly m more often in males. And sometimes they've had some kind of trigger that mm -hmm. would set it off. It could be maybe they smoke some weed or, or something. It, but if it's going to show, it shows then. It's rare to at least diagnose a young child with schizophrenia because... Well, their brains aren't fully developed yet yeah, either, right? And you don't know what, you know, there's there's a lot to consider before putting a label like that because it is such a, a devastating disease. And if they were able to diagnose them as schizophrenic, they could treat them with recognized treatments of the time and conduct experiments. Only these experiments were constantly changing and they were moving targets. So whatever the idea of the day, this is the treatment that they, they received. If the children improved, it was because of their excellent care and expertise. But if they didn't improve, it was because they were untreatable. Right. It's not our fault. <laughs> and Bender always had new doctors and students following around everywhere. And so they were you know, learning from, from her. her. Great. Exactly. So she loved using all types of shock therapies. Now I discussed all of these types of therapies in the Dr. Lobotomy series and the Howard Dully series. So mm -hmm. if you guys haven't listened to those, um, if you like go back and it goes into great de detail about all the treatments that uh, happened in the early 1900s up until the 1970s. So just to you know, recap, like the insulin shock. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Where they would, you know, put them in a coma. Yeah. Let's put you in a diabetic coma. That would be curious. For up to like a month. Yeah. 
um, metrazole convulsions, very mm. painful injections. Right, just right. their whole body would go, you know, um, into uh, spasms. Fever therapy. So basically they would give them malaria because malaria causes high, high fevers. And then next, ECT, electric convulsive therapy. These mm -hmm. children receive torture, not treatment. Mm -hmm. Children as young as six years old would get ECT. That's too young. Yeah. That's way too young to do that to a child. That's yeah. ridiculous. They were most often taken kicking and screaming in terror for the treatment. Mm -hmm. I wonder why. And Dr. Bender put fear in the hearts of these, of these little kids. She was cold and often didn't speak directly to them. She spoke around them. And she would say scary things like, okay, we're going to do this, 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 and this. And she was very stern and, and threatening. Okay, um, so this is how it would go. They would be taken into the ECT room, forced to lie in a stretcher, more like, you know, forced and held down. A cloth would be forced into their mouth um, to the point where they were choking or could barely breathe. Electrodes were attached to their heads. They were shocked. They would wake up with a blistering headache, body aches, dizzy and disoriented with amnesia. Mm -hmm. And some kids would receive daily shocks for, say, a week. Mm -hmm. And then some would receive, say, weekly shocks for a month. But, you know, there was no rhyme or reason as to why one kid would get more than another. And if you can imagine, like picture this, the kid is fighting because they're terrified of getting this done. And then they see the fighting, the fighting as being, you know, obstinate and, and uncontrolled emotion. So it just reinforces their diagnosis of schizophrenia and needing to get. And of course, makes me think like, did they really believe this or did they just do it? So say this so they could just keep doing it. I, I think it's the latter, but, yeah. um, and these children lived in constant fear, anxiety, and depression. And to add to it, let's give them a new generalized anxiety disorder Yeah, to go on top of whatever else they already have. But to add to it, these kids were on the pediatric ward, but there were, the adult ward was pretty much the rest of the hospital and they were often not protected from the the adults and they and the staff and they um were abused daily raped physical and mental abuse and then the disgusting living conditions some of these children suffered permanent brain damage and all of them got ptsd mm -hmm. and for all this torture she rained upon the children she earned accolades and was touted as a maverick in pediatric psychiatry and she earned honors and fame among the medical community. There were people that did, were trying really hard to expose her and take okay. her down, but sure. they were up against a huge, thick wall to try to break through to, to get you know, people to listen. And the biggest irony of them all was that as a child, she would, was diagnosed with, their words not mine, mental retardation <laughs> she repeated the first grade three times and it turned out she was dyslexic so oh, where's okay. her compassion where's her no not not it's just mm -hmm. 
quickly touching on Walter Freeman and lobotomies. So that was other psychiatric experiments and treatments. So again, go check out the doctor lobotomy and Howard Dolly if you haven't. Um, children, again, as young as six years old, were getting lobotomies. And Howard Dully, he was 12. Come on. Their brains aren't even developed then. Well, they don't care. This is true. I know what you're saying. Like, it's it's horrific. And yet they don't, they just don't give heinous. a shit. Uh, they'd be able to figure, okay, well, this is what happens when you do this to a six-year-old. Um, so the last case I'm going to cover here, or the last experiments, are the uh, stuttering experiments, also known as the monster study. And... So this was conducted it was by Doc. that? It was well. People called it the monster oh, study right. after the fact. Okay. Um, it was known not as the monster study. It was stuttering experiments. Uh, the lead scientist was a psychologist and speech pathologist, Dr. Wendell Johnson. He worked as a professor at the U of Iowa. So it was in 1938 that he started to study. Stuttering. That's a mouthful. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Say that three times. Started fast. studying stuttering. Studying, studying, <laughs> stuttering, studying, stuttering. Yeah. yeah and you wanted to know what the cause and effect was. Again, as a child, up to college age, 1926, he was a severe stutterer. Mm-hmm. And he underwent many therapies and he called himself a professional white rat. He was also a professor at the U of Iowa. So he had one of his graduate students by the name of Mary Tudor help him conduct the monster study. I'm just going to call it that. And so she could use this for her master's thesis. And so the question was, could they cause children without a speech defect to develop one? Is it inherited or learned acquired? The test site was Iowa soldiers orphan's home and the orphanage became a laboratory 22 children were chosen and they were broken down into two groups and then further from that four groups and i'll explain it there were the children 10 of them were stutterers and 12 of them were non-stutterers they were paired with similar age iq gender and then chosen randomly for these groups so there were two groups of an experimental group and then two groups of control groups. So placebo or no experiment um, with children from the age of preschool to grade nine. So the control group were labeled as normal speakers, regardless of whether they had a stutter or not. And they were rewarded for when they were doing the testing. The experimental group were labeled as stutterers, again, whether they were or not, and they had negative therapy. They were punished. And there would be... The teachers and the matrons were lied to. They were told that they were doing speech therapy, not experiments. And they were to explicitly follow tutors' treatment orders to the T, which they did. Mm-hmm. And there was no consent acquired. Now, these children were orphans, but who had the power to give consent for this? Well, you know, it was a great situation. They didn't have to ask for it, right? Mm -hmm. The results of the control group is that they saw no real change in the stutterers, positively or negatively. Um, The experimental group, Mm -hmm. significant and immediate lifelong damage was done. 
and five out of the six non-stutterers develop stutters. Huh. Their grades dropped, their self-esteem dropped, they isolated themselves, they didn't want to talk at all, mm-hmm. they were no longer social, they were depressed, they were bullied and teased, and the matrons and teachers admonished them every day. So they were being punished every day. Mm-hmm. This went on from the fall of 1938 to May 1939. She returned in the summer of 1939 to follow up. And the teachers and matrons continued to admonish and punish these children. So it, it didn't even stop. The bullying and teasing worsened. And then she tried to do speech therapy to undo the damage, but it was too late. <laughs> Nothing could be done. The victims of this experiment suffered damage that lasted a lifetime. Johnson tried to hide this experiment. He didn't want really anybody to know about it because I guess he realized that he fucked up and he really, really damaged these people, hurt these people. And so he died in 1965. But in 2001, this study was exposed and there were still three living victims, the stutterers. And they said throughout their life, they had low self-esteem, depression, some attempted suicide, social isolation, withdrawal from society, poor interpersonal relationships, poor education and job opportunities because they just, for obvious reasons, didn't do well in school, continued bullying and teasing throughout their lives, and that they said that their lives had been destroyed. They launched a lawsuit and... In 2007, won $925,000. And the University of Iowa was told that they had to apologize. But their apology was, however wrong this study was that we allowed it to be conducted, it was normal at the time to do these types of things. And Johnson made important contributions to science. So, yeah, we're, we're sorry, but when anybody puts a button there, they just undid what they were saying prior to that so i mean i could tell you that stuttering was the result of cruel punishment and bullying and all that kind of stuff because i duh like it's i don't know to me it just makes sense but you know they had to do an experiment to prove it yeah obviously they it's like anything it's like that that one psycho said it was a great time to be a scientist and do experiments why because they had carte blanche yeah right yeah that's throwaways right yeah which we know is not true Mm -hmm. okay so that is the end of this um miniseries and uh i hope you (laughs) what do you say i hope you enjoyed it like i mean Oh, no, it's very informative, but it's also, like, these things need to come out. They need to come into the light, and we need to ensure they don't happen again. I I agree, because if people think that, if some people think that this couldn't happen again, no, it it could easily happen again. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's still so many sketchy things going on that we don't know about. I mean, at least now, when people agree to a clinical trial, there's compensation and and Wa- waivers that are probably 18 pages long and stuff like that. Yeah. And but they're informed, right? But they're informed and they're paid. Yeah. Right. Okay. Now that we've come to an end of this episode, 
I want to give a shout out to two new reviews that I got. And uh, so <laughs> this is from, you're, you ready for this? H-D-J-D-U-E-B-T-K-G-I-W. And this is what they say. The best. Love the content and presentation. Very entertaining and full of knowledge. Keep up the good work. Thank you. But I don't know how to pronounce your name. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. Yeah. And and the other one is from D. Johnson 91. And they say, very interesting, knowledgeable, and well presented. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everybody that listens to this podcast. Thank Thank you. And supports us. Mm-hmm. So what's up next? What is up next? We're going to talk about mind control experiments. Oh. And we're going to talk about touch on MK Ultra. MK Ultra. Yeah. And uh, a lot of these um, psychological experiments that took place during the Cold War. Mm-hmm. So that's what's next. Men who stare at goats or something? No, was that, was that an MK Ultra? Thing? Yeah, something like that. Never watched that, that movie. movie. Yeah. It's a good movie. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Well, it's Coen Brothers, and I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan, so it was it was great. I loved it. But it's based on a book by um, Johnson. What's his name? Anyway, it's based on a book that uh, Ron Johnson. Ron Johnson. Yeah. He wrote a, a book called The Psychopath Test. Anyway, this this guy's great. Um, oh, okay, okay. Um, so, yes, that's the end of today's show. And thank you for joining. If you're interested in joining in the discussion, please feel free to join the Facebook group. And if you're on the Facebook group, jump in, post stuff, have fun, be serious, whatever you want. And thank you to those that support us on Patreon. If you're interested in more content and more stat, uh, go check out the Patreon page, stat. And that's it. I don't like, I'm not good with the other. I'm not a Twitterer and I'm not an Instagrammer. Yeah, no. I think I'm... it's because I'm old. <laughs> I'm just not good at it. Well, I know why you don't like Twitter. <laughs> if any of you want to run my Twitter or <laughs> Instagram account, let me know. <laughs> I feel like a, like an old person. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. Like, I don't Instagram know how to do thing. the Twitter. Mm-hmm. I I don't know what the, the wait. In- I was supposed to be in charge of your Twitter, wasn't I? <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. It's okay. I'm sorry. Anyway, okay. That's the end of today's show. Thank you for thank listening. You, thank you. Yeah. And remember to take care of yourself, take care of each other, love each other, and most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love.